uh, strange uh, to be here in this room, uh, to be preaching in this way. This room is empty, uh, but by now everyone's well aware of all that's going on in the world. Uh, the kind of unprecedented and strange times this is for all of us. Uh, but before we dive in this morning and spend time in God's Word, as we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 this morning, uh, I just want to remind you, uh, as we spend time coming under the authority of God's Word, I want to remind you of what is true about who God is and who we are in Him. We say these things regularly here at uh, CODA because we need to be reminded of what is true of us in Jesus. And so let me remind you that God is great. He is sovereignly in control of all things. All that is happening in the world at the moment has not caught God by surprise. Nothing is spiraling out of control. There is nothing that God is anxious or worried about. There is nothing that he is ultimately not going to turn back for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And so when we feel anxious, when we feel that things are spiraling or out of control, we need to be reminded that God is great. He alone is in control of all things And we can trust him in that. And so as we begin this morning, let me pray. And then we're going to read our text from Mark 15. And then we're going to look at where we're going today and really over the next few weeks as we lead up to Easter. And so but let's begin with prayer. God, we uh, trust that you alone are great. You are the one that is sovereignly in control of all things. And God, we confess that when we take our eyes off of you, And we let the circumstances of life begin to to crowd in and overshadow your greatness that it can lead to fear and anxiety. But God, we pray this morning you would give us the ability to gaze fully and solely at you. That you would meet us in this time in your word. That you remind us of your great love for us and all that you've done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so let's begin with the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 33 to about 37, but I'm going to go ahead and read down to 39. And so if you'd like to follow along with me, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so, as we like to say when we finish reading God's Word, this is the Word of the Lord. And when we gather together, we we often say in response, thanks be to God. And we say that because God has graciously given us His Word. And so today, we're going to start a series for the next month that will take us up to Easter. And in this series, we're going to spend time focusing on the cross of Jesus and what happened in those last few moments during the crucifixion and right after. And what we confess uh, within the church, not just our church locally, but historically within the church, is that Jesus willingly 
laid down his life for our redemption. And although it was the greatest act of injustice ever in the history of the world, as the only truly innocent man who ever lived was brutally murdered, it was God's plan for how to redeem for himself a people and to redeem the entirety of his good creation. And so we're going to pick up here really in the middle of the crucifixion. Uh, if, if you know the Gospels, Jesus was put through uh, a sham of a trial under the dark of night, just hours before this on Thursday night into Friday morning. He was sentenced to die and was taken and crucified on Friday morning. They took him to the outskirts of, of Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha, and they cruci- crucified him publicly for all to see. It was here Jesus was placed between two criminals, crucified by the governing authorities, and his only crime was speaking the truth about who he was and what he had come to do, which radically threatened the religious leaders of the day and led them to seek to kill him. And so as we read in verse 33, Jesus is now on the cross, and darkness has fallen over the whole of the land for three hours. Uh, In the text, we're never given a clear explanation of what happened with the darkness, only that it was midday. tells us it was from noon to three in the afternoon, and then this darkness fell. And it's safe to say that this was supernatural, the darkness that fell. And God was teaching and alerting us to some things here. And as we look at this text, and as we look across Scripture to fill in the fullness of what is happening here. This is how I want us to think through this text this morning. First, I want us to consider the darkness, the darkness that comes. What is it? What's going on here? Secondly, I want us to consider how Jesus deals with it. And then lastly, I want us to think about why it's so important. So let's begin with considering the darkness and what it is that's going on. Now, obviously, when you read the text, you say... There's something going on here that's blocked the light out. I mean, we could say from our 21st century minds that this is probably an eclipse or something like that. In fact, some commentators will will talk about it this way. Uh, Others have hypothesized it's a huge storm that would blow up sometimes in the Middle East that made it seem dark. Uh, But that is to say why the darkness fell over the land in verse 33. And I think if we're beginning to think that way, we're going to miss the bigger point of what's going on. So I want us to consider the darkness for a moment. And as we do, there's a theme that runs throughout Scripture that highlights the darkness and the light. You see it certainly very clearly in John's Gospel, but not only there, but throughout the whole of the Bible. And there's several ways that we can begin to think about this. And the first way I want us to consider the darkness in the Bible is this idea of spiritual darkness. And when we stop to think about what it means, we could define it this way. is turning from the source of light in the world. The source of all light and all of creation, and that is God. The Bible is very clear on it all the way throughout Scripture. In James 1.17, uh, James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The source of all that is good, all that comes from the Father. It's only what comes from the Father. And James even uses the term Father of lights. All that is light is from Him. Jesus will say something similar in John chapter 8 when He says, I am the light of the world. 
Then whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Or in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah prophesies over his son, John the Baptist, at his birth. This young child that will be the prophet that will go and prepare the way for Jesus. And he says this, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of the sins, of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so this image is full throughout Scripture. This idea of of the darkness and the light. And throughout scripture, God calls us to center our lives on him, saying he is the source of all that is good. He is the light. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see this. We see Jesus reiterate the truth that the whole of who we are is to love God and to love people out of that. God is to be central. He is to be the one we are made for. God tells us this. And he is the source of all that is good. And we are told to be about God for him to be central. And the reason is simple is because he is central to all of creation. It's his creation. And not only is he central to all of creation, he is the one from whom all blessings flow. When we gather, we we sing this every week as we end. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we're being reminded that he is central to everything. And so as sin entered the world and then each one of us was born into sinful flesh, we have continued generation after generation to seek our worth, our our lives, our identity, by turning from the source of all light. And when we do this, it brings us to this spiritual darkness. We're not made to be the center of the world, and no created thing was made to be the center of your world. And when we continue down that path and we turn away from the source of all light and of all that is good, we end with all sorts of problems. All sorts of issues arise. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. The consequences uh, of turning and seeking from not the source, which is God, but other things. What spiritual darkness that comes when we turn from the source of all good. When we look for it elsewhere. When we turn from God, the giver of all light, and we center ourselves on something else, there are dire consequences. There is a disorientation of sorts that happens when we turn from the very source and we put something else in God's rightful place. If you push the image here for a moment of dark and light, uh, just to ask the question, have you ever been... In a situation where you're in complete darkness for any given amount of time. Where you can't see anything at all. What happens when that's the case? Well, before long, you can easily begin to lose your grip on reality. In fact, the CIA uses an interrogation technique of complete darkness. 
And over time, what it does is it breaks down the person being interrogated because it's so very hard on you. Very literally, literally, there is a disorientation that takes place. Normally, in darkness, your eyes can begin to adjust, and then you can see some things, even if it's not the whole, but you start to get used to it. But in complete darkness, there is no adjustment. There's just this disorientation. And the same is true in your life. When you turn from the source of light and you begin to operate in the darkness or in the shadows, in darkness rather than light, it causes all sorts of issues. If, as scripture tells us, God is to be our source, our primary identity, then when we turn from him, there's going to be a level of this disorientation. If I seek to get my value and my worth and my identity from something other than God, I'm walking into the darkness. And the further I go, the more disorienting it becomes. We can rightly say the darkness or the turning from God, the embracing of something else in his rightful place is sin. Sin is ignoring God in the world he created or rebelling against him. And when we seek the source and something other than God, this is exactly what we're doing. We're putting something else in his rightful place. And in a very real way, we're turning the world upside down from the way it was created to function. And we're living and working against the way God has created us to be. We are seeking meaning and purpose and identity and things other than God. And that will lead us to being more and more fragile. We are walking from the source of light and life and looking for it in something else. And so let me give you just a couple of examples. If my identity is being rooted more deeply in something, whatever that is, other than God, when that thing that I put my hope and faith and trust in is shaken, it's going to be very disoriented. The more my identity is rooted in that thing other than God, the more devastating it is when it's shaken. For many in our world, for many in our country today, their foundation has been shaken. They have believed that protection, uh, that their safety is built on them being in control. And we all wrestle with this at different times. Having autonomy over our lives and we can kind of keep things under control. But suddenly when a disease threatens that, a disease that we cannot see or cannot control, that we're having a hard time predicting, it's very disoriented. It alerts us to how the world and our place in it is not in control. And for so many, their safety is tied to the belief that they're in control. They've walked away from the source of all all sovereignty and truth, denying that it's God's world and that he alone is in control. And now they become severely disoriented. You see on the news, I see it in the way people are reacting. You see it in their desperate attempts to, to hoard toilet paper. And if I have enough, then I can control this in my life. But it's really just an attempt to control things that we don't have control over. It's a disorientation when our hope is in something other than God. And it's not just people out there. We all do this. Not pointing the finger at anyone. We all do it daily in different ways. I'll give you a very clear example from my own life right now today. It's easy for all of us to begin to get our identity from what we do. Our vocation. 
Our sinful nature, after all, believes that I'm the center of my life and and then by extension what I do makes me who I am. And we all fight this. Our job can often become the place where we get worth and value, where we root our identity. It can be because of productivity. It can be because of recognition. People tell us we're doing a good job. It can be because we help others. Oftentimes, in fact, uh, most of the time, it's almost a mixed bag of motives. Uh, working is not a wrong thing. It's a good thing that God's given us. But in the very natural state of being human, I can often equate my value with what I do and how it's received. And we all struggle with this in life at different times. And suddenly, right now, many of us can't go to work in the ways that we were before. Or at the very least, it's severely altered. If you're a teacher and you're having to adjust to online learning and you're not getting time with your students and you're not doing the things you normally do, it can be disorienting. The same is true for a pastor. So take a a big part of my life is spent preaching and teaching and spending time in God's word and, and working through that with other people throughout the week. And suddenly it's in a very different place, in a different setting. It's also here when we gather together to worship on Sunday morning. And here over the last couple of weeks, in the craziness of what's going on in the world, we haven't been able to gather together in this place. Suddenly, because of social distancing, we're not meeting in the way we were before. And if I let myself slip into the darkness of believing my identity is rooted in being a pastor that teaches and preaches and gathers and does these things regularly, that can be disorienting when it's suddenly shifted. If I'm turning from the true source of my identity and embracing vocation rather than who I am in Jesus, it's going to be very difficult. And the same is true for all of us in the day-to-day of the things that we do. The same is true uh, if someone is critical of you and what you do, even if it's not what's going on right now, but someone's just critical to your job and your job is now your identity. It's the thing about who you are. It can be devastating. And the same is true about whatever you find your identity. in. Maybe you attach ultimate meaning and significance in your life to being a parent. And then something happens Uh, where your children let you down. And by the way, your children will let you down. And it can be disorienting, though, if you've built your life around this fact that you're a parent and these children are the center of your life. Now, it's good and right you love and care for your children, but if you let them be the focus, the complete focal point of your life, the ups and downs of your children's lives that are inevitably going to come are going to crush you. Because you've suddenly taken your eyes off of God, the source of all that's light, and placed it on a created being that was never meant to stand in that place. Your children were never meant to carry the weight of your primary identity. If you see being a parent as the thing that gives you life, your life meaning and purpose, and then suddenly you find out something that your child's done, or you get a call from the school and they tell you, and you go, ah, this can be really hard to take. Or worse yet, you build your life around your children and one of them gets sick. And it throws you into a tailspin because you've made this created thing the absolute way in which you order your life. And so darkness comes into our lives when we build it on anything other than God. 
other than seeing who we are in him. Darkness, so this spiritual darkness points us to the reality of sin in our lives where we're replacing God and what uh, he has done for us and what he has said. And we've done it and replaced it with created things. And so I want you to consider the last part of what the darkness is. And it will help us see the fullness of what's happening here. Yes, the darkness is the spiritual darkness or sin. But there's another image of darkness that we see uh, in the scripture over and over. And it points us, the darkness points us to God's judgment. And the prophets, much of their message is a warning of the day of the Lord. A judgment day that is to come. And as people are walking in this spiritual darkness and we're turning from God and we're seeking it in other ways, the cry comes that God is going to judge. And in that day, it says over and over there will be darkness. The image of the Bible of darkness is not just sin, but it is also the judgment of sin as well. It's something that we know. And I would argue that we even know we deserve. I mean it in this way. When we walk away from the light of all, our identity in God, our hope in Jesus, when we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we embrace the things that are contrary to God's design for our lives, which we all have done, when we do this and we exchange the source of all good God for something less, there is a distortion of the order of God's creation. We are seeking the light of all that is good, not from the source, but from something else. And the further we get away from the source, the greater the distortion, the greater the darkness that comes, the greater the problems that accompany it. And then ultimately, the greater the guilt and the shame, the awareness of where we failed and ultimately despair that comes. And then the more we know that these things are not as they should be, the worse it gets. I'll give you an example. Sex is created by God to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. One man and one woman, physical union that signifies the commitment of two becoming one in marriage. This is God's design. We see it all the way throughout scripture. And enjoyed in this way, it's not the source of all goodness, but it's something that is good, that points us to God's love for us and the way he's created us and the way it's to be enjoyed. And is a vital part of the oneness of marriage. As the two become one. And it reminds us of God's love and his fidelity to us. But when sex is taken outside of marriage and it's removed from the covenant. And it's cheapened. And what I mean by this is that when we've offered ourselves physically to another. Devoid of the commitment and the fidelity it signifies we've cheapened. There's a distortion. We begin to walk into the darkness. And then we take sex. And we make it to be the thing that we seek meaning in. And we pursue it above all else. This is why we have an abundance of a problem of pornography, which is just a further devaluing of sex. We've taken it and we've removed commitment. We've made it objects for our pleasure alone. There's no oneness of the relationship. And so meaning is further stripped from its true meaning and it gets darker and darker. The same is true when it's lived out and embodied. When you begin to seek sex with multiple partners just for the act itself. And suddenly sex in the way that God intended by his good design is missing altogether. It's no longer pointing us to the deeper realities of God's commitment to us and the way he loves us. 
but it's devolved into worshiping the creation over the creator. And it's been distorted. And the further that we walk into the darkness, the more disorienting it becomes. The more we alienate ourselves from God and his presence, the more there is guilt and shame and ultimately despair as it cannot do what we hope it would do. And we're going against the fabric of how things are made. We all know this. Our conscience bears witness when we walk into the darkness. When the alienation of walking from the giver of life. We are guilty and we know it. We know when we have walked off from him and that we deserve judgment. The darkness alerts us not only to our sin, but also of the inevitable judgment of our sin. And we see both of these throughout scripture. The darkness points us to sin, but it also points us to the ensuing judgment that comes with it. So how does Jesus deal with the darkness? As the darkness comes, how does Jesus deal with it? And as you look in verse 33 and verse 34, it says darkness was over the whole land. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus in the midst of this darkness and he hangs on the tree in the middle of the day and everything goes dark. And in order to really understand what's happening here, you need some background. Although we get it in part in this passage, we need the whole of the Bible to help fill in the details of what is really happening as Jesus goes to the cross to lay down his life for us. He's doing so to deal with the darkness. The darkness of our sin that leads to disorientation, that leaves us in a state of guilt and shame and fear. But Jesus is also dealing with the darkness of judgment that we are well aware of that we deserve. Now, we don't get this completely laid out in this passage. It's not all here, although it is here in part. But if we look at verse 34, as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he calls out to the father in the throes of agony, as the darkness uh, comes what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 22, which begins with the exact same line. A psalm in which David cries out to, the God, out to God in the midst of being surrounded by those who are persecuting him. And what is Jesus saying? What is the meaning? And how does this help us to understand the darkness and what's going on and what Jesus is doing on the cross? If you go back right before this episode... Just a few hours before Jesus is arrested, maybe 12 hours before where we are now in Mark chapter 15. Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane and he pours out his heart to the Father in prayer. And in those moments, in the throes of the disorientation of the darkness he is about to face, he asks the Father, if there be any way this cup can pass for me, please spare me. Now would be the time to let me know. And what we can see from the whole of scripture of what Jesus is referring to is he asked for the cup to pass from him. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, we see it over and over several times. The cup is equated to God's righteous anger, the judgment of God on sin. And if we look elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that it's not only the judgment, this cup, there's something else going on. In 1 Peter 2, it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In 1 Peter 2 it says Jesus took on the sins of all those that would put their faith in him and in his body as he goes to the cross. Paul writes something similar in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That the Father allowed Jesus to be sin. And so the darkness Jesus is dealing with on the cross is twofold. It's the judgment against, of God against all the sin of those that have put their faith in him. But it's also the sin itself as Jesus takes on the sin of mankind, of all those that would put their faith in him. And when Jesus goes to the cross and it goes dark, he's dealing with the sin of all those that would trust him as he willingly takes that darkness on himself. And then in doing so, he willingly takes the wrath that you and I deserve, the judgment that we deserved. The wrath is the holy, righteous anger of God against all that is evil and wrong and sinful. And Jesus, who knew no sin, he was perfect in every way, but he willingly took on the darkness of our sin for us. And he takes on all the ways that we have turned our back and rebelled, all the ways that we have sought meaning and significance apart from him. He took all those ways that we have distorted his good creation. He took on the vile and the disgusting. He took on the arrogance and the pride. He took on the hurt and the abuse. He took on the sin. He took on the sexual sin. He took it all, all of the darkness of sin onto himself. And then he also took the darkness of judgment. The judgment that you and I deserve, he took for us. He took all of it. And in doing so, he removed the darkness as far as the east is from the west so that we could again walk in the marvelous light that we are created for. And in doing so, God is both just and merciful. He is both grace and love and mercy and perfect righteous anger and evil at the same time. And they are held together on the cross. Friends, we want him to be both. If he ceases to be both, he is no longer God. And so he deals with sin and he deals with the darkness. And then he makes a way to lavish his glorious grace on all those that would trust him. As he brings a people for his own possession, as it says in first Peter, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. On the cross, he holds together God's perfect righteousness and his perfect love and mercy and grace. We deserved the darkness of judgment because of the darkness of our sin. But yet Jesus steps into the darkness that he can call us out of it into his marvelous light. And he does so for us what we could never do for ourselves. So why this is so very important is it holds God's characteristics perfectly together. But it also emphatically shows us. That he is perfect in every way and that his love for you and his creation is worth going to great, such great lengths to set it right. And he's the only one that could do so. And when we see this, it puts in proper perspective the glory of God in every way. We deserve the darkness, but Jesus took it for us. 
that we could live in his marvelous light. And so let us end this way this morning. When we see this and we see the uncertainty of the struggle of our world, we see the mess around us. We can look to Jesus and the cross of Christ and we can know how much God loves us. We know how great his love and his concern and his goodness towards his creation is and we can trust him. Even when things look bleak or difficult, God is at work. There's nothing outside of his control. He loves us this much. And on the cross, we see all of it. And so whatever is that we're dealing with today, wherever you are in your life, the things that are coming at you, let us be reminded together of the great love that God has for us and what he's done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of your truth. I thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. I thank you for this season. Even as, as strange as it seems right now, just with the things that are going on, I thank you for this season as we, as we come up to Easter and we were reminded of the glory of the cross of Jesus and what it means for us. Remind us afresh every day. I pray that you just continually point us to your goodness and your love and your grace and what you've done for us. I pray that we would see everything in light of, of what is true of us in Jesus. And we pray all of it in his precious name. Amen.